Mark 15, 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went boldly unto Pilate and craved or begged the body of Jesus. I'd like to speak to you on the day of preparation, the day of preparation, and you may be seated. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to the preparation at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's interesting that each of these Gospels log it. Matthew 27, 62, Mark 15 that we read from, Luke 23, 54, and John mentions this three times in John chapter 19 because it was the preparation. Uh, this, the relevance of this special day being mentioned is to kind of earmark or peg the date or time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the Sabbath day. And because this particular Sabbath day was a, a high holy day to the Jewish Passover. So every one of the Gospels mentioned the preparation and Matthew who writes to a Jewish Christian audience doesn't explain it because his audience would understand what the day of preparation was. But Mark explains it. The preparation, it was the day before the Sabbath. Now, Jesus Christ, according to most reliable sources, crucified on the eve of the Passover on this day of preparation. Sundown, the day before Sabbath, was the deadline for the bodies of those three men that had been crucified to be buried. They had to be off dead, off the cross, in a grave, or there would have been ceremonial defilement. That explains why Pilate, knowing the crucifixion would drag out sometimes for days, typically no vital organ was damaged, death was slow, excruciating, people would often die in crucifixion from asphyxiation, no longer able to lift themselves up on the cross, it would weaken, sag, no longer able to take a breath. So Pilate, knowing that these men had only been on the cross for a few hours, orders the Roman soldiers to go and break their legs. You may remember from the Bible that each of the thieves were still alive. That would have been normal. And their legs were broken, so they would succumb to death sagging and dying on the cross. But when the soldiers came to Jesus, he was dead already. Pilate was surprised by this. One of the Gospels records because he had not been on the cross long enough to die. There are Old Testament prophecies. Not a bone of his was broken and this was fulfilled. The proof of that is that no one took his life. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. So although it may seem insignificant that maybe Psalm 22 would say not a bone of his was broken, when you understand the circumstances of that Good Friday, you know why it was significant that he laid down his life for his friends. When criminals were crucified or put to death some other way, 
They could not be buried in the graves of their fathers, the common burial place of the community. It would have been the burial of the unjust with the just. Criminals were most often buried in the valley of Hinnom, that place of continual burning, that trash dump just outside of Jerusalem. So there are the unclean dust heaps of the city, the ashes of the burned entrails and internal organs of animals that had been offered at temple as sacrifices. There they would be buried among that rubble. They would lie the beheaded and the hanged in one area, those that had been stoned and burned in another. This valley known, Valley of Him, and also as the Valley of Corpses, according to J. Dwight Pentecost. But... It's interesting, we don't know where the two thieves were buried. Probably they ended up there. But this place, typical of hell, would not be the burial place of the Lord. Because Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate begging the body of Jesus. Joseph was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is a ruling body of 70 Jews presided over by the high priest that year. And Luke 23.50 tells us that although Joseph of Arimathea was part of that council, that he did not consent to the death of Jesus Christ. Mark Matthew 27.57 and John 19.38 tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple because he feared the Jews. Now, that's a little interesting that He would be a devoted disciple. Now he kind of comes out in the open after Jesus is dead. I mentioned that Pilate was surprised, according to Mark 15, 44, that Jesus was already dead. After the Roman soldiers go, ensure the death. You remember with Jesus, a Roman soldier takes a spear, thrusts it in his side. Blood and water flow out of the already dead body of Jesus. Now the body is released to Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin who came to Jesus by night. He is previously also a secret disciple of Jesus. They claim the body of Jesus. They must work quickly because the sun is headed down and by sundown they must be finished. They wash his dead body. They wrap it with linen and spices. They take it to a newly hewn tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had carved out, had carved out for himself on the side of a rocky hill. It is said by one commentator that he evidently owned the garden where Jesus was buried. And we know from the gospel account that the tomb and the garden was very near to the place where Jesus was crucified, so they did not have far to travel to the garden tomb. I've thought about, just as a side note, what was going on in the side of Joseph of Arimathea? Now, because God works on both ends of the line. He has this grand plan. Crucifixion, the Son of God will die, buried and rise again on the third day, but He needs a place to be buried. So in the heart of this Secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know how old he was. We don't know if he was sick. We don't know if he was just planning ahead. But we do know from the Bible that this was something that was recently done. Maybe one day he's sitting there in his office or at his industry or 
serving on the Sanhedrin and this idea just pops in his mind. You know, Joseph, you need to get ready for burial, for death. And you own this garden and you've got this little mountainous area, this hill. That would make a perfect place for a tomb for you. Why don't you hire the grave diggers to come and hew out this place in the rock? And so he does. Recently, it is a freshly dug tomb in the side of the rock. Just interesting to me and fascinating. Because you never know when God prompts you, when God moves in your spirit, that He may want to include you in something larger than you would ever be a part of in your life. I don't think Joseph of Arimathea ever knew that he was preparing the gravesite of the Lord, but he was. And who knows what God is preparing you to do for him right now. They carefully placed the dead body of Jesus Christ in the tomb. And according to the Gospels, a stone is rolled in front of the aperture or the tomb opening. This was very common. Typically, another stone would be placed in front of it. Later, we know that at the pleading of the Jewish chief priest, the Sanhedrin, that Pilate has them now seal, maybe cementing in the stone that was already placed there by Joseph of Arimathea. I can imagine that after it is done, that Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus who came to him by night. They now have handled the dead body of Jesus Christ with their own hands, placed them in this tomb, rolled the stone in front, secured it as they could, and the sun must have just gone down over the western hills around Jerusalem when they breathed a deep sigh of relief. Done before sundown. Because the Sabbath dawned at sundown, the Jewish Sabbath began at that note. Another side note, Joseph and Nicodemus were both very powerful men. As I said, holding seats on the Sanhedrin, the 70. Joseph, no doubt, was a man of considerable wealth. But these men had found in Jesus something they could not find in the old religious systems that dead and dying law filled with ceremony and the corruption that existed among those who were on the Sanhedrin, even the high priest himself, all of them, many of them I should say, in kind of some secret arrangement with the Romans and Pilate, the Roman government, working with the Sanhedrin, they had a limited amount of self-rule among the Jews. They were secret disciples. Kind of feels to me like maybe there was some cowardice on their part. Why not stand up on the Sanhedrin and, and be known? Maybe it was a little more wisdom that they knew they would serve God's purpose better to just hold on to things for a while. I'm not really sure. It's just interesting to me. But I also want to say that you never know whose heart is open to God. Because wealthy, powerful, influential people can still be hungry for God. I know it's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle for than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and they that trust in riches. 
But these two men, powerful as they were, Jewish pedigree as they had, rulers among their people, were very dedicated disciples of Jesus Christ. And no one else came forth to claim the body of Jesus Christ but Joseph of Arimathea. And maybe they were strategically positioned that Pilate would actually release the body of Jesus to these men of great influence. Just fascinating to me that you never know who God will use to fulfill His purpose. Joseph was a man prepared for the hour when he would prepare the body of Jesus for proper burial. Now, in all my years of ministry, teaching the life of Christ, I've never really dug into this phrase, the day of preparation. But a few days ago, it kind of spiritually was prompted to me to talk about tonight, the significance of this special day and what it meant to the Jews. On the face of it, it is very simple. It is a day before a Sabbath. That is a day of preparation for the Sabbath. Now, this day would have been Friday, our Friday. Sabbath would have been their Saturday. And as I mentioned, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, doesn't explain it. But Mark in chapter 1542, that I read and on the screens, and now when the even was come, because it was preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Mark breaks it down because he writes to a uniquely Gentile or Greek audience. Urban's Bible Dictionary says that according to Exodus 16.23, the day before Sabbath was a function as a time of preparation for the celebration of the Sabbath. In Exodus 16.23, the Lord said this, Exodus 16.23, This is that which the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which you will bake today and seethe or boil or simmer that which you're going to seethe and that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until morning. And the uh, hillbilly translation that is cook all you're going to cook today because tomorrow ain't going to be no cooking. On the Sabbath we're going to rest. So whatever you want to cook, cook it today. If you want to bake it, bake it today. This is a day of preparation. And whatever you want to see, or boil, boil it today. Because tomorrow you're not going to use your stove because it's the Sabbath day and we'll be chilling out, worshiping God, eating leftovers. There will be no servile work done on this day. It is the Sabbath. It is holy unto the Lord. It's the day of preparation. And so responsibilities that came to be common were bathing, donning festive dress, lighting lamps, preparing food, all of this. And by the time of Jesus Christ, it is said that these activities were expected to be completed by about 3 p.m. And after 3 o'clock, we're winding down, getting ready for this holy day. For when the sun goes down, Sabbath begins from sundown to sundown. It is a day of rest for the Jews. Now, in this unique setting of the Gospels, as I mentioned to you, and if you read your Bibles, and many of you do very often, you read them through every year, you know that when something is mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that is significant. 
John is a unique gospel. He writes as a supplement gospel. He takes a unique angle. But John three times mentions this preparation. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that means to view together, they all mention this day. There's something important about saying the day of preparation. Because this Sabbath that is going to be celebrated just past the crucifixion of Jesus is not only Sabbath, not only it is the Passover. This is the beginning of this very high holy day when there's even more to it. John 11.55 and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. In Matthew, or excuse me, in John 12 and 1. Uh, and I just want to give you a little background here. The Bible said that six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. And it was in that period of time that there was a dinner there. And Mary of Bethany anointed the feet and the head of Jesus Christ. It is Matthew who tells us that this took place two days And Jesus said in John 12 that she has anointed me against my burial. So I just want to kind of give you a little biblical proof that Jesus is crucified, he's dying. And all of this takes place not only around the Sabbath, but it takes place around the Passover. And there's a lot of preparation that has to be done. Jesus is there and uh, in Jerusalem and the marketplace is buzzing and women are scurrying around the houses, and they sit their husband to the market with a grocery list. They've sacrificed a lamb that's going to be roasted over an open fire. They're going to eat with their shoes on. They're going to eat with bitter herbs, symbolizing the suffering of Egypt. And they are going to celebrate on this day their deliverance out of Egypt. This is a long time removed, but it is never forgotten. It is a very powerful moment. And so, on the 14th day of the month, the lamb is slaughtered at twilight. The blood is placed on the doorpost and the lintel, the frame of the door. Uh, Of course, it is symbolic of the killing of the firstborn and the Passover of the death angel. As I mentioned, the lamb is roasted and shared. And if your family was too small... For the lamb, you shared the lamb with someone else. That's a great idea, right? To share the lamb. If you found out that he's more than you need, then you share him with someone else. Unleavened bread. And I knew this is true, but I searched several websites about Judaism. And, and for seven days, they are going through the house and anything that has yeast is thrown away. Now, it's interesting that modern Jews, if there's something that has yeast, you can take it to the rabbi, and he has permission to sell it to a Gentile. And if they don't sell it till after Passover, you can buy it back, but you've got to buy it back. That's at least in Reformed Judaism, at least in one place. And, and Judaism has many different levels and branches. So all the yeast is out of the house, because leaven, you know, is symbolized in some place. It's a tendency... That works invisibly, but it's sometimes evil. But in the Egyptian story, the reason it is unleavened bread is that it is baked in a hurry. Because when the Lord comes for you, and you're in Egyptian bondage, you don't hang around, you get out as quickly as you can. So the unleavened bread said, we're eating this, 
and for all of our generations we will always eat unleavened bread to remind us that it was with haste that we got out. That's why when you hear people say, you know, I know I'm going to serve the Lord, but I've got to get a few things straightened out in my life. You say, oh, no, no, you don't. You don't do it like that. You get the blood applied to your life, and you get out of Egypt just as fast as you can. We'll get a lot of stuff worked out later, but get out while the getting's good. Because Pharaoh's going to try to get you to stay He's going to offer four compromises to you. He's going to think of every way possible to keep you in Egypt, which is a type of sin, right? But you get out. That's why the lamb is not slow cooked in the oven. When we were visiting my parents last week, thank you, Brother Jury, for ministering last Wednesday. The Lord had given him a message. It was wonderful. I know what God spoke to you, but, but we goofed off a little last week. My dad's feeling better than we thought he would. And so we went to my favorite Cuban restaurant on Monday. And I had lamb shank that's been cooked probably 12 or 13 hours. And, you know, I should have been a Jew, I guess. I love lamb. It was so delicious. But the lamb that they ate at the Passover was not slow cooked like that. He said roasted on a fire. So it's probably a little chewy, you know. It probably wasn't as tender as what had been cooked in a crock pot overnight, right? So that was this idea. And you eat it with bitter herbs. They say horseradish and maybe the root of a type of a, of a lettuce. I'm sorry, I can't think of it. It's in my notes, but I'm just kind of breezing through this little section. Bitter herbs. And then you're going into this festival of unleavened bread. Everybody say the day of preparation. This is a big deal. This is Sabbath, and at the crucifixion of Jesus, this is Sabbath slash Passover. It is all happening together, and every Jew that is observing this feast is very busy on the day of preparation because tomorrow you're not going to work too much. You're going to be relaxed. I read something very interesting, and I want to share this as kind of an encouragement and lesson to all of us who are teaching other people, especially parents. It said the family meal, this Passover meal, provides the context for the head of the family to explain the nature of the observance to the children. We have lamb. We have unleavened bread. We have bitter herbs. They are all symbolic. And as we eat, there is a story behind every facet of this meal. And if you Google Passover, you'll find a lot of things there. And this has become a very elaborate meal, much more than I'm saying tonight or was in the biblical record. But of course, they would explain the unleavened bread that they got out they would retell this story and it would be actualized by every Israelite in the context of this observance. And they would remember, they would celebrate not only what God had done in the past, but what He was doing in the present. This ritualized activity provided the occasion for celebration, for reflection, and the formation of a community identity that we are God's people. We are separated 
We are a peculiar people, a unique people, the Bible says. And in our own families, we have our own celebrations to remember Jesus Christ. We need to retain the biblical elements of what we call Easter, which is in the New Testament, but probably not the original idea of the word. It is Resurrection Sunday, right? And I don't want to get in your family business, but whatever you do, Easter is not about an Easter bunny or an Easter egg. It is about Jesus crucified, buried, raised on the third day. So whatever you do, I'm not trying to be mean or critical, but whatever you do, don't let those elements replace the biblical truth that we are celebrating so that our kids grow up understanding what the Resurrection Sunday is about. And the same at Christmas. Because there are lots of other things that creep into those celebrations that have nothing to do with what it is about. And it is up to every family head, every elder storyteller, to keep that story alive in the hearts of our children and everybody we influence so they would know we are a community of people. We are the body of Christ. Got to prepare for that. In modern Judaism, this pre-Sabbath day, you know, and coinciding with the Passover, as I mentioned, there are lots of there's a lot of detail. My notes are a little repetitive here, but all yeast must go. Modern Judaism, they're dead serious about it. Lamb is a meat of choice, though not exclusively. The bitter herbs, horseradish, and the stems of romaine lettuce. There it is. The meal is elaborate and it's ritual and I could go into more stuff that is done today but it doesn't advance the mission of my message. The final idea about this part, don't get too excited, I'm not finished ministering, but about the day of preparation, the biblical perspective. This was an important day to God and His people. A busy time. And because they worked so hard on the day of preparation they were able to not work on the Sabbath day. If they would have not had a day of preparation, a day that was devoted to be focused on God, would have been focused on all of the things that remind us of God. Instead of a day that is a day of worship to the Jews, this Sabbath day was the very most important day of their week. It was the apex of their week. They lived for Sabbath. God worked seven days and on the seventh day He rested because of a day of preparation. Now, it's interesting about manna. You know the manna. They went outside and they said, what is it? This looked like frost and it was round and it was white and... Exodus chapter 16 tells us that they went out every day, the children of Israel, while they wandered in the wilderness, and they gathered manna, and they ate it for that day. Some of them thought, you know, let's kind of hang on to some for tomorrow. And if they gathered it on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, that next day, 
it was full of worms and rotted overnight. But miraculously, every week, every week, for the 40 years of wandering, however long the actual the time of manna was, almost that entire time, every Friday when you gathered manna, it kept overnight. They had a weekly miracle of manna. You gathered twice as much. And the Lord said in Exodus 16, 23, Bake that which you will bake today, and seethe that which you will seethe, and what remains you lay over to the morning. And Exodus 16, 24, And they laid it up till morning, and Moses bade, as they, Moses bade them, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. They went, wow, that's pretty incredible. So that's when some went out and tried to gather it later. Maybe that'll work on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And it didn't work those days, but it stank and had worms. And some went out on Saturday and they tried to gather it, but it wasn't there. And Moses got very angry because they did not trust God and did not believe God. Now I want to simply say this about the day of preparation. If you will live by God's principles and do what God says, everything will work out okay on the Sabbath day and in your life. But if you get greedy and if you violate biblical principles and you try to get ahead... They will not work for you because you cannot go against the law of God and have God working on your behalf. There are some things that He will not bless. They went out and tried to work that seventh day and there was nothing there. They didn't get a profit because they didn't trust God with the Sabbath day. Now, let me talk about the day of preparation for Atlanta West Pentecostal Church. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians began to meet on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and other places. They shifted their day of worship to the resurrection day. They perhaps celebrated both days, like in the good old days in America, when you had Saturday and Sunday off work. Maybe they did both. They, they had two days off. I don't really know the history off the top of my head to discuss that, but they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ with church and worship on Sunday. Now, for them, that was the Lord's Day. John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That was Sunday to the, to the Christian people. And I just want to ask some questions and get you to think about this some, and maybe we can all do a little soul-searching. To the Jews, remember the Sabbath was that. That was it. You live for that day. This is the day we honor God. And when we honor God, God honors us. But in many people, even church people, Sunday is not this day. Sunday is the day to get ready for Monday. Now, not you on Wednesday night, not you watching online, but to many people, Sunday has become just another day. How many of you remember blue laws? Remember blue laws? Up in Bentonville, Arkansas, our son Justin said they still have blue laws in existence up there, northwest corner of Arkansas. 
But for us, Sunday is a day of worship. And I would like for you to think about that day as important in your life and in the life of your family as the Sabbath day was to the Jews. So how much effort and energy do you expend in preparation for worship? If you looked at the landscape of your life, what is the peak day of your life? What is the most important day of your week? In God's eyes, the Old Testament church, it was, of course, the day that was set aside for Him. And we know that we should not celebrate one day above another in terms of, you know, the sacredness. Every day is holy to the Lord in the New Testament. But I want to talk about this practical day of preparation because I had a friend years ago. He was an instructor of mine and just took a couple classes in junior college. You've heard me talk about Kenneth Benson before. Uh, he, he loved the Lord. He was a Presbyterian. and had the privilege of baptizing him in Jesus' name. He received the Holy Ghost in the water. And you may remember that story. But Kenneth Benson told me that on Saturday night, by 5 o'clock, they were through. They had the kids' clothes ready. Everything in their house was ready for Sunday. And as a Pentecostal, Holy Ghost-filled Pentecostal, you know, I was thinking about how devout... Kenneth Benson and his family must have been about church. Clothes prepared, got my offering ready or paid online. The kids' clothes are washed and ironed if needed. I've thought about the Sunday meals. And the idea, the idea is that everything that can happen Monday through Saturday should reduce the stress of Sunday. Because those of us who are in ministry, which is many people in this room, Sunday can be very stressful. In ministry, especially those of you who serve in two services. And remember in Jesus' day, they say that they had to be finished by 3 p.m. So they weren't midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning getting ready for Sunday. Sundown would have been the drop-dead deadline. Friday night at sundown would have been like spiritually illegal. If you're cooking... After sundown on Friday, you know, that's a violation. 15-yard penalty. It's a foul. I know that many of you work five, six, sometimes seven days a week. And we have people in our church, a large number of people, who do ministry on Saturday. Hope ministry, nursing home. People who work all week long and serve on Saturday and serve on Sunday. I'm only saying that to say thank you for the sacrifice you make for the church and for the Lord. Time is a very valuable commodity. And preparation is very important to the use of your time. I was a Boy Scout for a while and all three of our sons were Boy Scouts. At some point in time, Justin became an Eagle Scout. But you may know, what, what do we say? Our scouts are supposed to be prepared. Do I have any Boy Scouts in the house? Is that true? Nobody even knows what I'm saying. What in the world? I know what's happened to the Boy Scouts, but it's still okay to be prepared. <clears throat> to be prepared. Several years ago, a few of us went on a little hunting trip. And Brother Brad and I were comparing gear. Because if I go do something, I, to the best of my ability, will be prepared. My wife will smile because I, if I have something big coming up, 
days in advance, weeks in advance, I am thinking about it. So, you know, for me, I'm a little weird. I like to plan and prepare. But I want to talk about this idea that we're prepared for Sunday. And not just this Easter Sunday. I'll get to that a little more specifically. But that Sunday has to be a big deal to us. Amen? It's not just a, a, a day of the week. It's a day that we are ready to minister to the Lord and to come removing as many stressors as possible in our life. If you're not ready Saturday night and you're scurrying around Sunday morning, you're likely to have an argument on the way to church about being late for church. And you're not going to be spiritual. You're going to be stressed and angry. If you haven't prepared your heart by prayer, interaction with God's Word, denying your flesh through fasting, if Sunday is just an add-on day, a thrown-in day, and it's just kind of, just, just whatever happens on Sunday happens, you're not going to be able to get out of church on Sunday or whatever Wednesday, whenever it is. I know we're in the middle of a work week. What Sunday really could have done for you and your family if you don't have a day of preparation. This week, are you reading through the Easter story? You have your bookmarks? Preparing your heart for Sunday. Getting your children ready for Sunday. This is this, is this golden opportunity. I know you're busy. This is this golden opportunity to build community, to teach your children, to teach your family that we're the people of God. This is the biggest day. This is the plan of God. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it happens this week and we're going to celebrate it and we're going to make it an important day in our family. This is a day of preparation. So I want to talk a little bit about this Easter Sunday uh, even more specifically. You know, we all believe prayer makes a difference. We believe investing in relationships makes a difference. We believe that prayer, interceding for people, makes a difference. If I don't invest, if I don't intercede, if I don't invite, I know what's going to happen. Brother Justin Jones told us, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. 100% of the people you don't invite don't come to church. And I know it's Wednesday and we're almost out of invitations and Probably there's a few here and there around, right? If you need one. But I read something, even after I was finished with my notes, I went back and was reviewing and had a thought and added it in. I I thought, what's the percentage of Americans that go to church on Easter Sunday? Well, Lifeway did a study. Lifeway, Tom's bookstore associated with the Southern Baptist Church. That 41% Even for self-identified Christians, 41% of Americans say they're planning to go to church on Easter Sunday. 39% of Americans that were surveyed said they are not planning to go to church on Easter Sunday. Not planning to go at all. But 20% of Americans say that they are undecided. 20% of 319 million people 60 million people say they haven't decided yet. But their mind could be affected by an invitation 
even on Thursday or Wednesday after church. <clears throat> Amen? 39% of those who rarely attend religious services, 19% of those who attend on religious holidays still haven't decided. 19% of people who generally come still don't know if they're coming or not. But our prayer, our preparation can make a difference. I want to talk about ministry preparation. Easter Sunday is a big day, but we've learned, you know, I've been here 20 years this year, we've learned that our big days help us make our normal days better. What we do on big days for the first time, we often institutionalize and we do it all the time. We've learned this is what we should do every Sunday. So I'm going to talk about some of these things tonight because they will affect every Sunday, but some especially this coming Sunday. <clears throat> so this is every Sunday and especially this Sunday. You ready? Master your ministry. Do a workman that does not need to be ashamed. If you're a teacher, study, pray, prepare your heart, your mind. Study your message meticulously. Spend hours getting ready. Your students matter for eternity. Work on the mechanics, the methods, the spiritual. If you're a teacher, be the best teacher you can be. If you're involved in worship, music, singing, playing, Practice, practice, and practice some more. Because God deserves your best. That doesn't mean that you won't make a mistake even when you practice. But you will make fewer mistakes when you practice. And perfect practice makes perfect, right? Not practice, but perfect practice. Concentrated, intense, good practice. I believe our Lord deserves excellence from us. So we combine skill and sweat with the Spirit. Amen? If you're just a slacker, don't say amen. But if you're not a slacker, say amen. If you're involved in ministry, communicate with people that serve with you to make sure everybody's on the same page. They're not in the dark about what they're supposed to do or where they're supposed to be or when they're supposed to be there. Make sure you communicate, please, with everyone that they're on the same page. Be on time Sunday especially. And properly attired our church time standards so that you represent the Lord and this local church with modest apparel and that you're ready to serve. Make sure you have the supplies that you need for ministry if you're serving especially in the Welcome Center and Friendship Force and people that require materials and, and I know they've been working on it, I've already been checking on it and they're ready for Sunday. Aren't you glad? On Sunday, be pleasant to other people. And be prepared for anything needed for your role in the Lord's day. Be prepared mentally and emotionally for the challenges of ministry and people. Because not everybody who comes to church is an angel. Not everybody who comes to church is even nice. <clears throat> but we can be nice to them. Be prepared for unknown surprises. This past Sunday... At about 9 o'clock, someone got sick in the foyer. I'll just leave it at that. So that's an unknown surprise. <clears throat> the idea of the day of preparation for the Jews was to make the holy day the best day of the week. The day of preparation was a stressful day, so the Sabbath day would not be stressful. And the more we plan and prepare and stress, 
And we've been working on Easter for two months at least. But the more we do all of that when Sunday rolls around, we are ready. As much as possible, we are relaxed. We're not worried because we don't have our act together. We are focused on people who need the Lord because of a day of preparation. We are ready. We are ready. We are ready for them. Amen. So this Sunday especially, arrive early so our visitors, our guests can arrive late. And we have VIP parking for those who arrive early this year. Very Inconvenient parking. <coughs> sister Cooper found that and shared it with me this week. My sister, very inconvenient parking. <clears throat> so if you don't get to park on the ball field, please don't park, if you're able. Now, let me just say it like this. Park as far away from the building as you're able to park and get to the building. If you need to park close, if you need a handicapped parking spot, park in a handicapped parking spot. Please do. If you're an elder and you, it's hard to walk, please park close. But if you can park far away, park as far away as you can. Brother Jury and all the parking team, Brother Mike, they've got it under control and we should be all right. But that's what VIP parking is, as far away as possible from the building. Now I want to say something else that I don't think I need to say to you people, but maybe this person is watching online. If you've been here more than twice, you are not a guest for guest parking. Guest parking doesn't mean I've been coming a year, but I don't pay tithes in ministry. That's not what guest parking is for, for the perpetual guests. <clears throat> we have perpetual guests. That's okay. But save guest parking for a person who's really a guest. My office is right there. I see out that window. Sometimes I'm thinking, God, send fire from heaven on that car. Not on the people, just the car. No, I've really not ever said that. I just thought of that. I will remember that, though, next time. I'm almost kidding, but at least you get the point. <clears throat> and, and I know I'm talking to the people, most of you who are, who are the folks who are going to make... Easter, a great day for our guests are in this room right now. But you can help me with those who aren't here tonight and also with you. Please do not sidetrack people who are serving in ministry. Unless you have a serious emergency this week, please allow our focus to be on guests. And please make your focus our guests. If you have a serious problem, we want to know. But if you just have an ingrown toenail, we don't want to know this Sunday. Save it for a week. It's not going to get better probably in a week. Talking about our pastoral staff who are very busy. Talking about people who are in the welcome center in the foyer. They are specially tasked, tasked for our guests. And people serving in the media booth don't need to know if it's too loud or too soft. And don't need any conversation because they need to be paying attention. Right? They really have to be paying attention. So welcome center, media team, ushers, our friendship force, the people who greet you at the door. We want to be prepared to be guest-oriented. 
Our sanctuary is remodeled. We have room here, but our foyer is pretty small. Our restrooms in the back will not be available. They're only for children and children's ministry workers. So all of us, we have these restrooms only. So be considerate and don't get in a long conversation in the restroom. Brother Justin said it Sunday, no holy huddles, please. And when a person comes that has not been here for five years, or they came last Easter and they've come this Easter, please do not say anything to embarrass them. Just say it's so good to see you. I don't even know if I would say, I sure have been missing you. That might be perceived wrong. Have you ever noticed... People who are backslidden, people who are backsliding or on their way out the back door of the church get real sensitive. They feel guilty. They've been offended. Brother Kraft, my pastoral mentor, would say they've got a burr under their saddle like a horse has got a sand spur between the saddle and his hide. Something's bugging them. So people can be a little hypersensitive. And you can say the right thing and it might be perceived wrongly. So do your best to be kind and welcome them. It's great to see you today. I'm so glad you're here. Amen? When you're in church, you can be looking around some and praying for people that need the Lord. Our Friendship Force and Welcome Center is going to do their best to get guest packets in a person's hand. Guess what? This is a clue. If a person is carrying a guest packet... What does that mean to you? They are here for the first time. Or for the first time in such a long time that we think it's their first time. Or we made a mistake or they wanted another ink pen. But nonetheless, if they have a welcome packet, that probably means they're here for the very first time. And this is, by many people's testimony one of the friendliest churches they've ever been to. This Sunday, a couple people were baptized and a young lady who's brand new here said, this church is so friendly, I've never been to a church like this. Remember, Natalie, you were talking to them, Justin in the foyer. They're so overwhelmed by the kindness of this church that God let everybody be just like that to every person who needs the Lord. They've been rejected everywhere and they come here and here they find people that love them. Amen? What an amazing thing. Our Welcome Center, we've never done this on a big day. Our Welcome Center is going to be open after church. They're probably going to be inundated with first-time guests. So they need some space, right, so they can work. And they're going to be, have as many people signed up to help. And uh, that's going to be very exciting. But it's probably going to be very busy. And we'll continue to do that because we have a good place. And they don't have to walk all the way down the hallway anymore. I'm so glad for the remodel that it allows for new people to be able to connect with our church easier than ever before. We're going to have folks at the door as people leave Sunday so we can say thank you for coming. It's been great to have you with us today. And again, I want to remind you, please do not engage people who are working with our guests in conversation. Let them focus on them. I'd like for the worship team to please come. As I love to say, give us a little hope here. 
we are we're implementing a change in our service order on Sunday that will be every Sunday till we decide we think we should do something different. This Sunday, though, we will have one opening song and we'll have an introduction of the children's choir. They'll be coming in at the end of that first song. Our kids will come in. They're going to sing a great song and we're going to stand and clap and cheer and let the children's choir know that's the best children's choir on planet earth and our kids are going to go, wow, my parents, my grandparents, this church loves me, right? That's how they're going to feel. When they sing Sunday, they're going to feel like they're the baddest, which means best singers in the world. After that... There will be just a few quick announcements. There will be prayer over the offering and the sick at the same time. That's unique to Easter. What's for the party will be celebrated in that segment. And when all of that is over and our children are back in their own service, then there will be a worship and choir that will lead right into preaching with no more interruptions. And then we will have an altar service where people can find the Lord. So during worship, I know you will, but respond in worship with singing, singing and clapping your hands and raising your hands and worshiping the Lord and moving. Amen. Look alive and in love with Jesus. This is our opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be prepared for it. During preaching, you just would you do just do that, do that, do that. Amen. That's right. I believe it. Somebody here is gonna go, wow, everybody believes that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And everybody in this whole place believes that if you'll repent and be baptized in Jesus' name, you can receive the Holy Ghost. And all these people speak with tongues. And look, they've been risen together with Christ. They've conquered their old habits of sin. I want that to happen to me today. Amen. I'm sorry, but you have to be seated just another moment. Please, sorry. You're doing so good. I just want to... Our altar call on big days, because we're typically full, will kind of be in two parts. I'll have people repent and pray right where they are. I know they can receive the Holy Ghost sitting like they did on the day of Pentecost. And you may move to somebody to pray with them. And if it's your guest, you always meet them at the point of their need. We'll pray with them there. And then part two of the altar service is going to be a little different. Okay? I'm going to invite our altar counselors, our altar workers to come to the front. And they're going to stand across the front just like this. And this is going to be in the future. We need to do this every Sunday. No, the lighting's not good for cameras right here. They're going to stand right here along this very front. That's where the altar workers are going to come. And if you're a mature saint and there's not enough people with badges, then we need your help. And I may mention that. I need some more help. And they're going to come here so when a guest comes, they know to come all the way to the front of the altar, all the way here, and you're already facing them like I've tried to get you to do for 20 years. Right? unsuccessfully many times you're in front of them where you can look at them and speak to them and pray with them right that's why we stand in front of people that we're praying with isn't this fun 
Well, meet them at the point of their need. Is there something I can pray with you about? What can I pray with you about today? And we'll pray with them about what that need is. Repentance, healing, whatever it is. We start there. And when we see hunger for God, we let them know, you know, that's the Spirit of God on you right now. The Lord is ready to fill you with His Spirit. And we take their hunger as our cue to lead them to receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen? Amen. Our altar baptismal team will be over here. And we have a new baptistry room that will be ready right back on this side now. We have those back in that corner. By that exit sign in the far corner. And back behind the drum cage, there's a room that we've converted to a baptistry changing room. Amen. So the theme is risen. You've seen it for a month. And we're going to see people risen with the power of the Holy Ghost. At the ends of the edges of the altar are black boxes. They're not recorders for airplanes. They're black boxes. And they have altar cards in there. And when a person receives the Holy Ghost or is baptized in Jesus' name, it's very important that we fill out an altar card. It's very important we get their picture. But we get their permission to take their picture. And we try to get their picture before they're baptized. We let everybody know that we're ready to baptize them. We've got garments, towels, a dressing room. They can go home in the clothes they wore to church, but risen to walk in the newness of life. Amen? So if you're praying with someone, and you're not an altar counselor, you can still fill out a card. They all go in guest services. On this side of the guest services table, on the left-hand side, there's a, there's a place for altar cards. And the pictures are sent into the office and those on the altar team know where they go. Amen. It's very, very important. And as I mentioned, our baptistry team is ready. And I hope there's a line all the way down that aisle of people wanting to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins. Amen. And when we're finished with church and it's all over, and you go relax and It's going to feel so awesome Sunday. Knowing that whatever God does, one sows, one waters, God gives the increase. We're going to let God do His work Sunday because I can tell you He's already ready. He's prepared to change the lives of people. All He's waiting on is us to be prepared for it to happen.